Hey, dummies. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Tyler Froberg. I'm Noah Young with the Shiloh Farm. And this is Farming for Dummies. The podcast where we explore the vast world of agriculture and break it down in a way that dummies like us can understand. Noah. Tyler. <laughs> Noah. You got... Your your tomatoes got snowed on. So I listened to the podcast last week as it was snowing. And I was like, why did I say that I put my plants in the ground? I even knocked on wood to not jinx it. But sure enough, last week we got snow. May 2nd, it was white, dude. It looked like Christmas Day, white everywhere. And I was freaking out. But <laughs> what's funny is I called you and I was like, um, do you think these are going to be fine? What did, what did you say, Tyler? I said, man... <laughs> It's, it's not, not looking you're good. You're like, I, I have bad news for you. But fortunately. Well, what I did, though, I did. We had a, We actually did have an in-depth conversation, we though, did. for real. And what I did say was, don't knock the snow off of them. Don't knock the snow off anything. If the snow's already on it, then it, you have a chance if it does freeze for it to insulate. However, I was well, really fortunately, worried. plants here in Nebraska just behave a little bit differently than they do in Texas. I'm not saying your, your advice there is you bad, go. just that. <laughs> Plants in Texas are maybe a little more uh, weak when it comes to the elements, but our plants here in Nebraska are strong and so far are so good. I don't want to say it because I'm worried we're going to get like hail or snow next week again. <laughs> oh, man. What's what's good down in Texas, buddy? Oh, we've been busy. We're getting ready to plant elderberries, which we're very excited for. We're doing a, a little trial through the state uh, to kind of... Just get some some more insight and yield information on elderberries and growing information. There's not a huge presence of them in Texas agriculture. And so we're looking to increase those numbers for the Texas elderberry market. We're really excited. So what are you actually going to do with the berries? Well, so the question is, is what are we going to do? And so our goal is actually to not grow them for the elderberries, but to grow them for the elder flower. So as most of our listeners know, Noah and I have a business together called Good Living, where we bring farm fresh shelf stable products to your doorstep. We like to say taste the simple life, <laughs> but so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be harvesting the elder flower for tea. Once it's dried, it creates an extremely tasty, aromatic, and of course, healthy drink choice. We're excited for it. Okay. So I, I should know the answer to this, but admittedly, I don't. <laughs> We're not actually using the berry. You're just harvesting the flower. Yeah, we are not harvesting the berry. While the berry does have a special place in the market, we feel like with our current business that the flowers will play really well into our market. Yeah, and I'd love to grow elderberries up here, but at this point, I'm worried it might just snow here in May and <laughs> it, it, it would kill them. Now, how did your chickens fare through the snow? Wow, you know what? That is a smooth transition. Uh, they fared very well. It wasn't really super cold. We didn't even get below freezing, but the chickens did just fine. Well, speaking of chickens, today's guest is the president and co-owner of one of the most well-known chicken hatcheries in the country, if really not the world. Yeah, Thomas is not just a one-chick pony. He talked not only about hatching eggs, but also some tips and tricks for what to do with the chicks afterwards and figuring out if a chick is a boy or a girl. This was an excellent 
interview. <laughs> Excellent. Indeed. You know, what I really found fascinating is when he brought up hybrid vigor, where we're actually crossing two breeds to create a characteristic that was better than both the breeds combined, whether it be egg laying or a sex linked gene. Before we get to this interview, though, we have a new sponsor. Tyler, lay it on chick. What do you got for us? Today's episode is brought to you by Stark Brothers. For over 200 years, Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchard has been helping gardeners across America grow more of their own food by providing quality fruit trees, nut trees, berry plants, and almost any garden plant that you could want. So thank you to Stark Brothers for sponsoring this episode. You said 200 years. That means they've been providing those plants for eight of my lifetimes. So think about that. They would have gone to like a general store to order from them, right? And then like a traveling salesman. And then finally a catalog show up in the mail. And now you can actually go to www.starkbros.com to order. Well, that's enough from us. We're going to hop on the old good living tractor and start plowing that compaction between your ears. Let's welcome to the show, Mr. Thomas Watkins, president and co-owner of Murray McMurray Hatchery. Mr. Watkins, how are you today? I'm doing I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Now, anybody that follows me on Instagram or TikTok, they know how much I dislike Iowa, but you are coming to us from <laughs> Iowa, but you're not actually from there, so I'm giving you a pass today. Where are you actually from? Um, I, I am born and bred Nebraskan, so... That's right. Go big red. Go big red. Go big red. Um, a transplant. So as uh, we say here, I'm a captive of Iowa. Well, and I'll have you know, I do always say the only good things in Iowa is McMurray Hatchery and Casey's Pizza. So you do make my list. You do. You make the list. Or no runs, uh, but yeah. <laughs> That's true. And now, Thomas, we know that you currently work in poultry, uh, but what about before that? Do you have a, a farming background? So I uh, I, did, I grew up in Nebraska in a small town of about 200 people um, where I did live in town. Um, you know, I, I do say I have very agrarian roots. I, I, besides just regular mowing, you know, lawns and stuff, did, you know, hired handwork, you know, as long as I can remember for either for my uncles or neighbors or, you know, farmers out in the country. So, yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with the uh, with the farm life. So what was your background then before chickens? What did you go to school for? I, uh, boy, that's a, that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> I went to school to be a chef. So I went to culinary school. Really? So yeah, the, the first go around, I really wanted to be an engineer, but I couldn't afford to afford that. So I went to culinary school instead, but, uh, I did that and then actually realized that I didn't really just want to be a line cook somewhere. Um, mm. so then I went back to school to Wayne state for, um, drafting and design, but, uh, that was pre 2008. So the housing crisis. So <laughs> I was actually working as a draftsman um, designing houses before that. So you have to find a different thing when no one's building houses. I'm thinking back to when I was a child and there, my grandfather out on the farm, he had his dirty desk and there were seed catalogs and there were irrigation catalogs. But right there on the top every year was the beautiful, colorful Murray McMurray chicken catalog. Now that's been going on for for a long, what, since 1917? Is that correct? 1917, 105 years. 105 years. So how did you make the transition from 
what you were doing to Murray McMurray. Yeah, I uh, I married into it, I, should, I guess. Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my wife's father, my father-in-law, is is the other owner of the hatchery. So he's been partners with Murray McMurray, the grandson, since the the early 2000s, mid-2000s, somewhere in there. So was part of the rule to date the daughter was that you had to get chickens? Was that like part of the deal? Like how many chickens did you have to offer yeah. to, to marry her? <laughs> even, even though I knew what he did, I didn't really grasp it until I, I came on. Like I, and even growing up in, in the, in the country, very rural, I, I did not see chickens in the same light that I do now. I really had to fully immerse it within the hatchery to understand, uh, I, I tell people I live, I, I gained my uh, knowledge from chickens very organically. I, I grew them out and, and lived exactly the same way that people get to chickens now. They're like, oh, I'm going to do that. That'll be kind of fun. I'll have a few in my backyard. And all of a sudden you're up to 200. And <laughs> <laughs> they, call that, they call that chicken math, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, I, I did that. It's like, oh, I want to, I'm going to incubate my own. Like, and then you do that and then you get tired of having that on your counter all winter and, and, um, <laughs> You get ducks and you get geese and you get all of the other things that go along with it. And so it, it grows very, very organically. But I understand people's thought process because of because of the way that I did come into it. So was there a moment for you when you realized that you didn't want this just to be more of like a hobby with a couple chickens, but you were taking an interest in the business side of things? So when I came into the hatchery, it was to do maintenance, uh, to be honest. You know, I'd worked oh, wow. um, after... After kind of my failed uh, drafting career, I, I went into construction. So I did utility work. So a lot of construction work too. And so when I was offered this job, it was to replace the maintenance guy here. And I built the the incubators that we're currently using. So that was in 2013. And I built the incubators that hold 110,000 eggs. Whoa. So it, it was kind of like a, what can you do next, you know, scenario. It's like, well, I did that. Like, what else can you do? Like, so I took over purchasing merchandise and, and just kind of kept going, you know, it's obviously my father-in-law. So there's uh that helps, but it was, <laughs> it was never the intention for Can't me hurt. to, uh, to take over. And then, and then now I run the, the hatchery. So you worked your way up the roost. Yeah, I did. I, I did every menial job from here and there and I still do. So yeah, that's, that is that's awesome. how you learn the trade. Does, does Murray McMurray have multiple locations? No, uh, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> More um, news coming soon. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. I'm. That is something I'm. I'm. I'm working towards. But no. Right now we're just. We're just have our one spot in Upper City, Iowa. So right on Highway 20. I, I hear Nebraska is nice this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> How many employees is the one hatchery able to support? We have about 25 full-time employees and about 25 part-time or very seasonal employees as well. And what kind of positions in the company are there? You mentioned a few, but what kind of jobs are there? Most of half of our employees are our phone operators. So if you call in, you get to talk to our staff here. Um, we have one marketing person, we have one IT person, and then the other half would be what we consider our hatch team. So the guys who do all the, the, the actual chicken hatching and incubation and then the flock management as well. So I think we have six full-time guys there. And then the part-time or seasonal are our order fulfillers. So when you order chickens and you get, you create your order, those are the people who actually are putting the chickens in the box. So 
You said flock management. Now, when I think of a hatchery, I'm thinking you guys are getting the eggs in from somewhere and you're hatching them out. Are you saying that you guys have the chickens there and you're collecting those eggs to hatch out? We own all of our, the the vast majority of all of our birds because of what we do. We're rare and exotic breed hatchery. We have six farms within an hour of the hatchery here that we have all of the breeder flocks. We have about 45,000 laying hens. So with that many chickens, we hear a lot in the news right now about the bird flu. Is this something that is of concern to y'all? Absolutely. Um, Most poignantly because we did lose uh, a site to the bird flu this year. So that uh, that was really hard. We lost about 15,000 of our breeders. And within that, there was 50 individual breeds, um, 40 of which wow. we did not have on any other farms. So man, we're, we're very much rebuilding. Um, we were fortunate enough to save the eggs in the incubator, which we turned around. I've got, I've got them at my house now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've got, I took 3000 birds home and put them in a shed. And then I've got about 10,000 birds in in Missouri currently where we're growing them out so we can replace the flocks that we lost. But yes, bird flu is a, is the real deal. You mentioned that so casually that you just took home 3000 birds. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very terrible, uh, it was a very terrible week, but, uh, you don't, we don't, we don't have, you know, it was, it's been a month ago, but I mean, we were having an unusually cold. We're still having snow. We haven't really warmed up, um, even yet. I've had, I had like a four hour window where I needed to convert, um, an unheated Quonset into a chicken brooder and I had no, no power and no water and no, you know, no source of heat. And so oh, man, it was, it was fairly frantic. Um, <laughs> my wife came out and like looked at me and just like realized that it was not going well and just like turned around and left. <laughs> In in Texas, we call that up creek without a paddle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I did get it going. Um, it was a little tougher start than I would have hoped. But uh, yeah, I've got power cords just laying over the ground. I, I robbed power off of a couple of grain bins and I've, I've just got stuff everywhere because, you know, the hose is spread across the yard. It's a little better now that it's, you know, we're warmed up and it's not freezing, but we're getting out mm. of that having to brood age anyway. But it was a very tough time to start just in the, all of the other things we had to do within the hatchery. It was, I wish it was 12 hour days. Um. <laughs> now, earlier you talked about y'all have incubators in the hatchery that can hold 110,000 eggs. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to talk about that and more after the break. So your chicks just came in the mail. You got your brooder all set up, but there's only one problem, Noah. You know what that is? Well, you got to get your bedding prepared. You got to get your bedding prepared. And when it comes to new chicks, there's really only one option. Eaton Pet and Pasture Hemp Bedding. Now, we've been using Eaton Bedding here at our own operation at the Shiloh Farm and have absolutely loved it. In fact, I just got two new bags in. Our chicks are about six weeks old at this point and pooping like crazy. (laughs) But this stuff is so absorbent that it's actually stayed really clean. Not only is it staying so clean, though, I mean, the odor control. Am I right? Yeah, it actually doesn't stink that bad. Normally, I walk in and I got to cover my nose, but this is 
pretty odorless and not only odorless, but dust free. I've been able to go in there and, and breathe easy knowing that the 100% natural hemp bedding is taking care of most of the problem. Only the best for your pets. Visit eatonpetandpasture.com and when you check out, use the code DUMMIES for 20% off. A hundred and ten thousand eggs, twenty-one days, ninety-nine and a half degrees. That must be the most stressful time. How are y'all able to do that, Thomas? It uh really good record keeping. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine so. Now, I mentioned chicken eggs, and it's my understanding they take twenty-one days to hatch. Is yes. that correct? Yep, twenty-one days, mostly, give or take. Mostly. Yeah, there's always some early and some late ones. Now, what about turkeys, ducks, geese, and some of the old other poultry fowl? Are are they 21 days as well? Uh, no, everything everything's, has some variance. Um, ducks and geese are 28 days. Same with turkeys. Uh, quail are like 23 days. They're, everything has their own. And even within that, like we say, you know, we, we're pretty consistent with, we have 110 varieties of chickens. Um and that's 21 days. It's three weeks between incubation. But there's actually about a 20-hour window variance in the different breeds um, to get them to hatch at the same time. So when we talk about setting eggs in the incubator, we'll put some in 20 hours before we'll put the last group in. And there's they're staggered all the way in between that. So they all hatch within the same time. Even if you said 21 days, it, well, it could be, you know, 20 days and, and 19 hours or 21 days and, and 16 hours. So eat within within chickens. And it's the same with, you know, ducks and geese too. Um, turkeys are pretty, they're very quick, 28 days, I think. But like Muscovy ducks are 35 days. So Wow, interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize there was such a variance amongst the breeds within the species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what kind of environment is needed in order to hatch those eggs? What does an incubator actually do? Yeah, so it's in a very simple term, it's an insulated box. You know, the shell of it is is basically styrofoam. Um, you, you get into the specialization of fans. Um, you're, you're always trying to turn over air, but you're not, you don't want to create cool spots. So even temperature throughout. We actually start at... 100.7 degrees in our incubators and it drops by a tenth of a degree roughly every 12 hours until we get to 99 and a half degrees but within really? that we also manage the humidity so humidity is really important in hatching it it affects the the chick weight that it'll affect the chick for its entire life what do you mean for its entire life yeah so when you're hatching a chick you're actually they they will lose weight. So if you weigh an egg before you put it in the incubator, and then you weigh it before before it hatches, you're you're looking to lose between seventy to eighty percent, or to get down. You know, no, you don't not lose seventy eighty percent. You're gonna lose twenty to thirty percent of, and it's moisture is what they're putting off. They're breathing um, even as they're growing, and so they're they're kind of dehydrating. But if you lose too much, then then you have weak chicks. If you lose, if you don't lose enough, they get like water belly and they and they have struggled to hatch. But it does like incubation is so key that it will fundamentally change the growth of your breed for its whole life. I I always knew that humidity played a big role, but honestly, I didn't know why it played such a big role. That's super interesting. I'm curious to know why y'all start out 
at 100.7 degrees Fahrenheit and then work your way down to 99 and a half. Yeah. Um, or is it a trade secret? No, no it's, it's not. <laughs> Some of it depends. You know, if you were to have an, in, an incubator on your, we, we literally broke it down into heat units. So uh, when I say I wanted to be an engineer, this was, this was kind of right up my alley. I took the number of days and the exact temperature and I broke it down by individual breeds and broke it into heat units. So the amount of time at a certain temperature, and I got a number for every breed. And because of the staggered of when we put stuff in where where I want, I, I put more heat in early. But also you're, you're usually putting in, um, we, we temper the eggs. So the eggs are between 70 and 80 degrees, depending on the time of the year, before we put them into the incubator. And that, that keeps the egg from sweating. Um, which causes issues with uh, excessive coolness because, you know, like when you sweat it, you put, you take off heat. Um, so you create cold spots in the eggs, but that's uh, either here nor there. So you're putting more heat in early. You're advancing that embryo uh, quicker, but also you can't get too hot. You get too hot and you'll, you'll kill the embryo. So anything over 102 degrees is, is, is that fatal line where the, the embryos will start to die. How long does it take for the chicken to lay the egg for you to take that egg and then put it in the incubator? Yeah, you don't want to do it immediately. Um, usually the best the best would be within two to three days. You, you wouldn't want to take an egg out from under the hen and, and put it in the incubator. So anything over 80 degrees and that egg will, will start to incubate. Even if it's, you know, if you leave it on a hot porch, it will start to grow really slowly, you know. That's not a viable option, but it does. That's kind of how it, that embryo does begin to form. We set all of our eggs within seven days of laying. Anything after that, and you'll start to lose viability. Anywhere they're probably anywhere from three to seven days old when we set them in the incubator. Now, I I used to be an ag teacher, and every year we would hatch eggs in my classroom. And one of the kids' favorite thing to do was candling. And we would talk about what to look for. You know, we'd look at them every other day and see the growth. How important is candling in a, ha a large hatchery operation? Is it a tool that y'all do use or do y'all not do that? I know a hatchery that candles every egg and we don't candle at all. So. Wow. wow. Interesting. Either zero or everything. <laughs> that's, that's fair. You know, and I was, I was curious about that because while it is cool to see you know, how important is it? The egg's either going to hatch or it's not, right? Yeah, You'll so know if it hatches. <laughs> we've built, like, you know, all of our history, and I, I can go back, you know, on our, our computerized data up to down to 2009 and look at every breed's hatchability every week of the year. So I, I, I've got a good idea of what our hatchability is going to be, and it always varies some, you know, a couple of percentage points one way or the other, but... If you candle everything, you can you can narrow that down, but you really only give yourself like a three-day window. So you would candle before you, like we take them out of the incubator and put them in what we call the hatcher. The hatcher room is where we hatch them at day 18. Um, that's about the day you don't need to turn them anymore because they're big enough. They kind of roll themselves around too. But So you could, I could candle them at day 18 and say, oh, I know exactly what hatch percent we're going to, we're going to have in, in, you know, like in our, we're selling chicks. So you either sell based off of that, that new data, but that doesn't give you a very long window. We just kind of trust our historical precedent of, well, nothing changed since last week. So it shouldn't be the same. <laughs> that makes sense. Now, post-hatch, 
the sexing of the chicks is extremely important. You know, some people will order just males, just females. So there's an old wives' tale that talk about that pointy eggs are roosters, rounded eggs are hens. I'm guessing there's no truth to that, but but is there? Have y'all seen that? <laughs> I I've had many uh, the old ladies tell me that we're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, I'm what sure. Did, what have I thought? I've just been doing it wrong this whole time. Um, <laughs> No, because you can look at individual breeds, you know, like a Polish breed. If you look at a Polish, they lay, lay pointy eggs, like the just the breed characteristic, but also the individual hen. That one hen, if it lays a pointy egg, it's always going to lay a pointy egg. So it's just genetics. So is there any way that you can figure out what the chicken is going to be before it's hatched? There is a scientific method where, at like I said, that day 18, you could take a sample of, you literally inject a needle into the embryo pull out the dna and you could tell if it's male or female i i don't have the capacity to do that that would just take that, me forever because like i'd just be i'd be there with a needle and <laughs> only one hundred fifty thousand more to go yeah and you're gonna <laughs> and you have a i'm assuming you have a specialized trained employee that three days from that point is going to be able to tell you whether they're male or female right <laughs> yeah so we have our our sexers who are I want to say experts in the field um, that are, they determine the males and females. So, so it's day 18, all the eggs are being moved into the hatch room. And you mentioned that they kind of start to move themselves. Yeah. I said that and I thought, well, that's probably not really right. They don't necessarily need moved. <laughs> um, you know, the, the hen, the hen would sit on the nest and she moves the eggs and it keeps the heat even within it. At that point, they're producing so much heat that they're, you're actually trying to cool them off. Um, they're not necessarily moving the, like the egg, um, but we've we've taken them out of the egg holder, you know, which roots rotating them and put them into baskets. So that when they begin to hatch, they're they're not just falling through the rack; um, they're in their own baskets. I see. And is that is that hatch room heated? Yes. Um, actually, the incubator and the hatcher are are identical machines, except for you know one of them we're using racks to turn; the other one they're just baskets on a on a cart basically sitting in there um it, it ranges yes it is heated and it's cooled as well because well i don't want to work in 100 degree temperature so <laughs> it's it's, yeah. rough. it's probably between 75 and 80 degrees in there all year i read somewhere that the sound of chirping can actually encourage chicks to hatch is that true and do y'all play chirping sounds <laughs> we, we let them do that themselves um you know, with whatever you do, there is always something that hatches first. So how careful your window is, it, it doesn't matter. Um, something hatches first. And that's so they're lonely, so they chirp. And that kind of invigorates the, you know, the ones in the egg yet to start to like, oh, it's it's time, you know. So it's like seeing the first robin of spring. It's like, oh, it's time. Like, you know, it's they, they, they take care of that all on their own. They just know. They know. Yeah. You you know, we're trying. We didn't invent anything here. You know, chickens have been doing it themselves. We just kind of control the chaos. I feel like that's one statement that Noah and I use a lot. Like a lot of this stuff has been doing it on its own for a lot longer than we've been trying to do it for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've got all these chicks that are cracking out of the eggs. They're 
incredibly loud all over the place. I know when I go pick them up, I only get 50 at the post office and and the, the postal lady is going nuts because of how loud they are. So I can only imagine how <laughs> loud this room is. What do you do with the chick after it's out of the egg? Yep. So we count them. That's like we're counting our chicks as the hatch. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you do that to fall asleep? Or? Yeah, we do. We do it before and we do it after just to see how close we were. Um, <laughs> No, so as as they hatch out of the basket, we we count them into into our our flats or our tubs, and we put a hundred birds into each one. So then we it's just easy to count those, and that's kind of how we base our our hatch day, how we're gonna fulfill orders. So we we pre-sell all of these birds, and then we kind of give ourselves the assortments. So you didn't select a very specific bird; you wanted a, an assortment that lays only brown egg layers. And so the variation in, in the hatching, some hatch more, some hatch less within a few points, then then we know what we're going to use for those assortments or what we can't use for those assortments. So we try to make up all of the individual customers that order individual breeds first, see what's left, and, and then do assortments. So so you've, you've counted all your chicks, so you understand your hatch right yep. now. But some of your customers, they haven't just ordered males and females they've ordered something specifically and you mentioned earlier that you have specially trained employees so what are those employees called how did they learn how to do this and what are they actually looking for so, yeah so there's there the there's males females and what we call straight run so straight run is just unsexed as we counted them out of the basket you know out of the for the hatcher we put them in a basket and if you order a straight run we didn't we didn't try to distinguish males or female at all it's just as hatched you know females are called pullets and that can be a broad term anything less than one year of age can be considered a pullet so any female less than one year anything above one year is is considered a hen and uh, the males are cockerels so a cockerel is any male that's less than one year old and a cock is anything that's more than one year old so our sexers our chicken sexers is that's their term that's their job title, which is funny when you have to write that down. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. They are, so they said there's there's a couple of different ways that we determine males and females. The most common way and actually the hardest way is called the vent sexing. So chickens don't have any exterior parts, males or females. It's all interior. So in the vent, um, the cloacal opening is a shiny bump um, and that you're looking for a shiny bump and that's a male if they don't have a shiny bump that's a female that's like that's the whole there is one college in the world that will teach this skill <laughs> and all of it is do you see the shiny bump do you see <laughs> the shiny bump and so have have all of your employees been to this college or no do it's, train like, it's in like employees to do it? uh vietnam so, oh, wow. <laughs> so um, maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's South Korea somewhere in that area. Yeah. Um, so that's the so you don't have to, to have a college education to do this no, as long as you've been um, properly. If trained. you're willing to work really hard in kind of a very tedious job, then I'll teach you. 
come on over. We'll, we'll learn it. <laughs> but no, most, most people can't do it or would choose not to, but that's only one way. So the vent, vent sexing is, is our, is the most common. And what, if you get birds at home or you hatch your own, that's, that's the one you would have to do. Um, we have what's called feather sexing. So you can look at the, there's the primary feathers and the flight feathers that grow on the chicken's wing. And if you have specific lines dedicated to feather sexable breeds at day old, the longer flight feathers. So on the wing will indicate a female and slower growing would be a male. People get really confused and they think that any, any time they get a bird and they can open those wings and they go, Oh, that's, that's female. It's like, well, no, because you don't know the genetic parentage of that. We have multiple lines of, of our parent stocks. We own these breeds. We, we have them. The genetic makeup of it is considered rapid feathering, which is the fast feathering gene or slow feathering or, um, is, is the, the slow, but we have a, a line of males and females that produce the rapid feathering gene. And we have a line of males and females that produce the slow feathering gene and it's a sexed link trait. So it will pass from the father to the daughter in the, the rapid feathering. So, but it's only a one generation trait. So you can't take those birds and produce your own line of feather sexable birds. So it's something that we do here because I literally have multiple flocks of this. I have the rapid feathering line, which is males and females. I have the slow feathering line, which is males and females. And then I have the crossed line, which is fast feathering males on slow feathering females. And that's what we have when we hatch at the hatchery that produces the, the feather sexable birds. So it's, that's why it's only a few breeds, but it does save a tremendous amount of time. You can when you're vent sexing, if you're good, you can do about 600 birds an hour. Whoa. Uh, Holy Anybody cow. could feather sex and probably do 2,000 birds an hour. Wow. Now, you talked about these, these sex-linked genes, specifically in the feathers, but there's also breeds that are color sex-linked, correct? Yes. So uh, people are very familiar with that. Um, you know, the, the sex link is, is a, also a color gene. Like a Rhode Island red has what's called the gold gene. Um, it's a red bird of gold. It kind of makes sense. A Rhode Island white, which you don't see a whole lot of, or a, a white rock or a Colombian uh, Plymouth rock have what's called a silver gene. And the gold and the silver do not mix. So the same thing. You could have a Rhode Island red male over white Plymouth rock females. And it the male line transfers the male color red gold will transfer to the female so they're red and then the roosters will be white so when you're looking at the chicks you'll have a red female and a white male you know cockerel wow and that's it's the same it's just a one generation cross um those are the most common that people think of when you talk about you know sexy chicks because it's their they're typically the um, the best layers are, are very common, most productive birds because they've just been bred to just lay eggs. So. And so over the years, there was just a group of people who they noticed that when they bred these, these colors came out yeah. and figured out it was because of X reason, took yeah. notes and said, hey, guys, if you do this, this will happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the United States went with, so that, like we said, there's there's two types of, there's multiple types of kind of color sexing. I don't know if I really touched on that, but the United States went with the, with the hybrid cross. So two different lines to produce one 
genetic offspring. Europe kind of went in a different, they went to what's called an autosexing. So that's a, a breed of chicken that will produce color sexable chicks, but they'll do it every generation. You know, like a cream leg bar is a autosexing breed. Um, a Bielefelder is an autosexing breed. You don't get the same production out of those, those breeds because they're not, they don't have that hybrid vigor that you get out of the, out of a cross line. That has to do with what's considered the barring gene. So like a barred Plymouth rock, you think barred rocks are kind of the black and white striped chickens that, uh, the barring gene passes from male to the female offspring differently than it passes to the male offspring. So they, they kind of went that route for a, also it's still considered a color sexable. It's, it's, but it's not very easy for kind of the average person to, to do either. Cause it, there, it does have a lot of variances, but now you mentioned that you pre-sell a lot yes. of these chicks that they're already sold and a lot of those get shipped through the mail. Can you talk about how you're able to ship chicks through the mail? Yeah. So again, when we talk about kind of nature doing its thing, we're just hijacking it. Um, a mother hen would, she would lay a clutch of eggs over a number, you know, she lays one egg a day. She would lay eggs for five or six days and sit on her nest unless she's stealing someone else's eggs, which also happens. And so she's actually was, would sit on after that first chicken hatch, she would continue to sit on her nest for two to three days to try to get more of that clutch to hatch before she would go off and kind of start to forage and find food, at least for the chicks. So mother nature provides the chick develops out of the white in an egg and the yolk is, is strictly a protein. It's a food sack for the growing embryo. Right before they hatch, they actually ingest the yolk through their belly button. Chicks have a belly button just like people. And so they have a belly full of yolk. And that is, like I said, it's like six grams of protein. It's 19 grams of iron or, you know, something like that. That it's, that is all the food and water that they need for 72 hours. So when we talk about shipping chicks, the reason we do it a day old is because of that window that nature has kind of given us. We hatch whatever we hatch that same day, it gets put in the, the U.S. post office. So it gets sent to the mail, goes to your post office, just like Noah said, and the post office lady gets to call you angry and grumpy that your, your chicks are making too much noise. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty. it's a pretty cool phenomenon on how that actually, how that's done. So you go to the post office, your chickens are there. Everyone is super excited. Just some quick tips for those folks that, that are excited. What, what should they be doing? What should they expect? Yeah. So, you know, they, it's probably been a couple of days, you know, two days or so since those chicks have hatched, having a warm brooder ready to go is going to be key. Um, not waiting till you have the chicks in hand to set that up is going to save, it literally will save lives. Because um, you kind of forget about the chicks have, they, if you're trying to heat up an area, you know, if you're brooding chicks, they need to be 99 and a half degrees inside your brooder for the first week. But that includes like if, if the floor needs to warm up or the tank or whatever you're going to brood them in, the, the brooder itself should be fully warmed up. You, you preheat the oven before you put a pizza in. Like have your brooder preheated as well. That needs to go on a McMurray t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just thought of that. <laughs> so, um, and the other thing is to um, have warm water. So if you're putting, 
you know, if I go out to the hydrant outside and get water out, it's coming out at 40 degrees. And if I'm going to feed that to my chicks, well, that's going to chill them down. So having, you know, room temperature water or even warm water for them to drink right that first day will, will help out a tremendous amount as well. I have a buddy who got chickens about three months ago and he came to me the other day and he's like, man, I haven't got any eggs yet. Are my chickens broken? And I kind of laughed and I said, man, you still got a couple of months to go. Most people don't realize at what age chicks start laying. Now, obviously every breed I'm sure differs a little bit, but what's that generic answer that you can tell somebody? Yeah. Um, some of it's time of year, you know, a, chick, a chicken natural cycle will fluctuate with the, with the daylight. So if you've got chicks late in the fall, they're probably not going to start laying until until the spring when they're getting in more like 12 hours of daylight. But, I mean, real generically, I say between 22 and 24 weeks. So, you know, five months would be. Some of them will start as early as 16 weeks, but that also, you know, it really it does depend on light too. Well, we appreciate that advice. Where can people go to learn more about McMurray, learn more about chickens? Yeah. So, uh, com is our website. You can, if you want to just browse pictures of, uh, baby chicks, it's pretty cool. Um, we put out a catalog every year. Uh, it's, it's a labor of love. We do that all in house. So check out our, our request a catalog. It doesn't cost you anything. If you like getting seed catalogs in the mail, you'll like the chicken catalog, even this the put on the counter it's it's my favorite time of year sitting down with my wife to look at the chicken catalog well tom thank you so much for your time we really appreciate all your chicken insight oh, wisdom yeah. and the hatching side of things for all those chicken parents out there do you have any tips or wise words of wisdom before we let you go yeah so i, I think the biggest thing is to just listen to your birds if you spend just a little bit of time with them and i'm not even talking like 10 minutes, 20 minutes of your day. And when a chicken is stressed, they get really noisy. So when you're talking about going to the post office and those birds are noisy, it's because they're, they're done. You know, I get done, you know, at the end of my day too. But that's, that's kind of how you know that they're stressed because of how loud they are. Um, you know, chickens make a pretty constant noise, but really like within our hatcher, it's not that noisy. Yes, there's lots of chicken peeping, but it's, it's a very contented, peeping it's very kind of soft um you know that first chicken that hatches and he has nothing like he doesn't see anybody's all alone he makes a lot of noise and and that kind of signals the other ones as well but if you just spend a little bit of time with them they'll tell you you know how how things are going they could be too hot they could be too cold they didn't find the food very well like if they're if they're noisy and they're really loud and it's irritating then there's something wrong Hey, Tyler. Yes, Noah. Did you like that interview? I loved that interview. Well, if you like it, you should have put a wing on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Noah. Sorry, Noah, I'm Noah, a comedian. hen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought saying it was excellent was too much. Nah, nah I got plenty more where that came from. <laughs> but, but for real, though, oh my gosh, it was so great. Like, I've always loved incubating and, you know, most people are at least fairly familiar with the process. But when you think about scaling that, you know, you're going from your little, your little 12 egg incubator and scaling it up to 110,000 eggs, everything that goes into it. And, you know, we were saying earlier, the flock management aspect of it, not even just the egg 
management, but like the whole flock managing those flocks for the entire year. That's, that's crazy. So much work and so much information. Well, and I actually don't like hatching eggs because we're really bad at it. I've not had very good luck. <laughs> and so I enjoyed hearing some of the tips and the science behind actually hatching. That was stuff that I realized, oh, I was maybe doing a lot of that wrong. So thankfully I can just go to McMurray and buy the chicks. But I, I think I might try hatching some this, this year as well. And man, going from a few chickens in the yard to 110,000 eggs. Talk about a gateway drug to homestead. Oh. <laughs> That's, that is classic chicken math right classic there. Classic chicken math. And he just nonchalantly, oh yeah, we had to move 3,000 birds over to the house. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just can't imagine. Well, Tyler, what do we have in the mailbag sponsored by new sponsor, Stark Brothers? Today's mailbag question comes from Julie in Virginia. And she says, hey, Tyler and Noah, been loving the podcast. Hi, dummy. I <laughs> she didn't say hey dummies like we always like to hear but that's know, okay we forgive you julie she says hey tyler and noah been enjoying the podcast i just recently planted my tomatoes about three weeks ago and i noticed i'm already getting tomato hornworms what is the best way to try to combat these i'm not as much worried about an organic product as i am that's something that's effective any advice you can give would be greatly appreciated. So, Tyler, this is obviously one for you, but I want to appreciate the <laughs> fact that someone else is actually planting tomatoes around the same time I am and not in the middle of December yeah. like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair I enough. feel your pain, Julie. I feel your pain. The old tomato hornworm, the dreaded tomato hornworm. So, they can be the bane of any tomato grower's existence, whether you're a you know, container gardener, a backyard gardener, a market gardener, a small market farmer, and even a large scale tomato grower. Uh, they, they can just be detrimental. And they, th the scary part about tomato hornworms is that they can be detrimental quickly, right? If you don't catch them in time, you come out one day and the top six inches of all your tomato plants or a tomato field are eaten. Gone. It just like that. Gone. gone. And so, We'll kind of start uh, with the lowest method, if you will, <laughs> and that is if you're a container grower or a small backyard gardener, just the old squish with your hands or, of course, your chickens, uh, if you have chickens. So you're just going to search through the plant, and when you see those nasty little looking caterpillars, just pick them up, grab them. They, they can't hurt you. They're not a threat to you. Pick them up, grab them, and uh, feed them to your chickens or just squish them. Crunchy. Yeah, satisfying. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, when they're younger, they're going to be hard to see, but that, that tomato hornworm is living on your plant a lot longer than you realize it. So start doing those insect inspections as soon as you can. From the day of planting, start inspecting your plants. They're the same color as your leaf usually. And so you're going to have to get in there and look when you're doing an inspection, you're not just looking for damage. You're looking for caterpillar poop. Look for those little, they, they almost look like little specks of chocolate all over the leaf. Right. Uh, and remember when you see that poop, look up because usually that poop falls. <laughs> so look, look up. And so that, that next level of organic control can be companion planting. So planting things like dill and fennel are kind of known for repelling uh, certain types of caterpillars. Marigolds. Uh, that, 
marigolds exactly oh, there's lots of marigolds. different companion plants that there's some scientific research that that shows that it can be affected it's settled science tyler yeah <laughs> so the next the next level of control would be a product called bt it's omri listed labeled for organic use it's Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a bacteria-based insecticide. So it's a liquid that you would mix up into a sprayer and and coat your tomato plants thoroughly, and, and that can be a, a pretty effective organic control. And then, of course, we have several conventional insecticides. You'll just scroll through the label and look for an insecticide that's labeled for tomato hornworms. There's a lot of them out there, um, and apply uh, as directed by the label. Well, there you have it from our farm dummy expert. If you have any questions, feel free to email them to farmdummies at gmail.com. And I also want to take a quick second to thank everyone that's left us a rating or a review. It really helps in boosting this podcast, and we appreciate if you enjoyed this episode that you would do the same. With that, we hope you all learned something today. And remember, like John Wayne used to say, life is hard. It's harder if you're stupid. We'll see you all on the next podcast.